to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton with you all now. Thank you so much for joining. A lot to cover today, including the latest on the uh, Ninth Circuit. I know everyone's calling it the Ninth Circus now because... That's what uh, that's what everyone's going with. But the Ninth Circuit looking at Trump's travel ban. We've got updates on that uh, global cybersecurity problem, that global hack uh, involving ransomware. And uh, we've also got all the latest from down in D.C. with Trump's agenda. Any number of things that I would uh, love to get to today. And some of it, I'm sure, will get left on the cutting room floor, because I never have quite enough time with all of you. But let me start. Let me start, if I may, with uh, the the order of the day, the uh, narrative of the week, I'm guessing. It's certainly a narrative today, is that uh, the Trump administration has already um, has already started to run off the run off the rails and and that people are stepping away from it inside the GOP. And here's the New York Times, which is the, the, the flagship paper of the opposition, New York Times today. GOP senators pull away from Trump alarmed at his uh, volatility. You've got uh, this is how the piece starts. Senate Republicans increasingly unnerved by President Trump's volatility and unpopularity are starting to show signs of breaking away from him as they try to forge a more traditional Republican agenda and protect their political fortunes. Several Republicans have openly questioned Mr. Trump's decision to fire the FBI director, James Comey, and even lawmakers who supported the move have complained privately that it was poorly timed and disruptive to their work. Many were dismayed when Mr. Trump seemed to then warn Mr. Comey not to leak negative information about him. And and they, they go on and so now you've got leaks from some Republicans to the press about how uh, they are worried about the direction of this administration. A few, a few things on this. Uh, I want, and I think this is a, a, more, a, a broadly shared trait of conservatism in this country. Uh, I want a White House that pursues policies that are, if not going to make my life better. And I think the government has a pretty limited role in doing that. Uh, you know, hopefully they don't engage in uh, large, unnecessary and very costly wars that could have a very real impact um, on my life. Um, although, in a sense, I, that all, wars have already had an impact on my life uh, from my, my time serving in the government in the past. But you know what I mean? That obviously matters a whole lot, whether we go to war with uh, foreign countries are engaged in military actions uh, abroad that require large numbers of U.S. personnel. Okay. The tax code, health care, immigration, major big ticket items uh, that 
the Trump agenda is supposed to address. And I could break down in each one of those how it um, how it matters in the day to day. One of the reasons I like to talk to you so much about healthcare is because I I can't imagine anybody listening has not dealt with their fair share of frustrations, disappointments, and maddening delays uh, and inadequacies created by the system, not from your own uh, preparation or decision-making within the healthcare apparatus. So we all deal with that, right? And of course, we all have to deal with taxes, whether we even pay in the at the end of the day, whether we or the end of the year, I suppose, the end of the fiscal year, whether we pay taxes or, or not, that affects us all, our businesses, how much everything is that we buy. So you see what I'm saying? I, I first and foremost, will judge the administration by its actions. And I think it's too early to say that it has failed. Uh, there, are, I have some concerns. Um, I have my uh, my reasons for uh, some degree of of not skepticism, but just I, I'm still cautiously op- optimistic. I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic. There have been some stumbles, um, but what I think is increasingly clear uh, is that the opposition to Trump isn't really about the policies per se. Uh, the media's hatred for Trump is much more cultural. Uh, the media's revulsion at all things uh, Trumpist, Trumpite, the Trumpers, that comes from a place of disdain for those who support Trump, as well as uh, tr- what Trump represents himself. Now, the, the parts of Trump that upset the media, it's fascinating, really, because Here's a, a billionaire from New York, born and raised New York City, media star, real estate billionaire, has had long-standing relationships with the press. We all have seen the photo of Bill and Hillary at his uh, last wedding. What is it they hate so much about him? And I, I think that this is this is something you could write a whole book on. I'm, I'm sure some people are, if they have not already. I maybe just don't know about them. Why does the media hate Trump so much, considering? Where he comes from and uh, and you know how he comports himself. He is he is thrice married. He is not a social conservative, right? He's uh, you you can see how the editorial board of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, you can guess or or you can point to uh, what it is about someone like a a Ted Cruz, for example, that they object to so much, right? Here's somebody who's uh, avowedly openly. Uh, very uh, Christian and pro heartland and Texan and all all that right or you go down the list of of other Republicans in the past you know they Mitt Romney they you know he was a very wealthy financier worked at Bain Capital and and was incredibly successful but uh, well I actually think it's interesting how much they hated Romney considering that again not somebody that really culturally should be so bothersome to them but. Uh, hate is now a, a unifying theme on the left, right? H- hatred of the enemy. Instead of trying to co-op the enemy, instead of looking for converts, Democrats are always looking to find heretics to make examples to the rest. And the aggressive uh, and destructive social justice ideology within the Democratic Party is now prevalent. Uh, that That is now in the vanguard, right? This isn't just some fringe element. Um, progressivism that seeks to destroy opposition, humiliate opposition, bring them to their knees and force them to comply whether they want to or not. Um, that is 
the the main effort, if you will, from the modern Democratic Party right now. I mean, they will pl- they'll you know put some uh, they'll they'll put some different tones on things, and they'll take a different approach where they need to for the electoral map. But they do view this overall as a fight between two narratives of American culture and American life. And it's on it's on that front that you see still uh, they they can't get beyond it with Trump, that he won't bow to the media, that he won't uh, agree that they should have the power that they believe they do have, um, that he doesn't concede it to them, that he won't kiss up to them, that he won't uh, bend the knee. Uh, This enrages them because it's necessary for all of the rest of progressivism. Right. You, You can't have people that openly question and get away with it. You can't have people that oppose your main uh, main items on on your agenda, whether it's climate change or socialized medicine, a- any number of issues, creating this uh, this increasingly stratified but officially stratified system uh, that the U.S. government comes in and, and says, well, identity groups, we're going to do this balancing act between all these different identity groups. And as a matter of law, take power from some, give power to others, give additional legal protections to some, take legal protections away from others. Uh, as well as in the day-to-day culture and how we talk about uh, our lives, our our, our entertainment, uh, our politics, everything, right? On the cultural front, they absolutely hate Trump. And it's on the cultural front that I think, which is weird, I know, because Trump is, in a sense, comes from them. And, and maybe that's why uh, that, that drives some of the hatred. I think there's a uh, a sense that Trump is a turncoat to his class that he wasn't supposed to take this position, that he wouldn't be a, a voice for those who forget about it on the economic front. And, and the recent research has shown this. We talked about it last week. But on the identity front, meaning that uh, there is there's a large portion of the country that's sick of everyone else getting to uh, define an identity for the purposes of uh, of achieving political power and uh, going to the government and saying that, you know, we, we need to be treated a certain way and given certain benefits and have the laws tilted in our favor even. And the, the media always acting as though um, the different and I'm speaking very broadly here, but all the different victim groups are, are deserving of, of so much more and whatever that may mean, you know, that to to be believed more than others in a in a court of law or to be given jobs at the expense of others or to be given uh, to be uh, given citizenship more so than others or in, in every different aspect of government today. Uh, the progressives view this as a not we're all U.S. citizens or, you know, we're all living within the American polity, but Every person is to be treated differently based on what group that individual fits into. It is a collectivist approach to everything. And Trump speaks for those who are sick of that. So on the cultural front, it's just Trump takes up the. You could say he's almost like a lawyer who's taken up a case for the other side. He, he's not one of them. I mean, he's not one of the forgotten. Obviously, he's a billionaire, right? He's a billionaire. He's incredibly famous and incredibly connected. But he is a a traitor to his class in the eyes of the left, which makes him uh, an untouchable, which makes him terrible. And he continues uh, to 
withstand their withering assaults and treat them with a disdain that I think they deserve, and I'm sure many of you agree as well. And it is in that it is in that clash of cultural narratives that the Trump presidency thus far continues to be successful. It is every time that Trump goes and speaks about uh, respecting and supporting police and not giving a 20 minute lecture beforehand about how Black Lives Matter has really important points that it's trying to make. It's in saying that we will secure the borders and in not backing down when everyone says, well, that's just so racist and xenophobic. It's in we're going to fight Islamic terrorism, radical Islamic terrorism, and in refusing to refuse to say radical Islamic terrorism. So in the in the narrative battle, the Trump administration is still successful and still serves a very important purpose. And some of my fellow conservatives that are either never Trump or kind of sort of Trump just a little bit, but are now are, are seeing some daylight, are beginning to think that we have reached the the turn uh, in this whole saga where conservatism will uh, will turn on Trump. Uh, I don't think it's there and I don't think it should be there because I agree the policy has not yet come through. That's. That that is undeniable right now. We we cannot point to any major policy successes of the administration. Other, I know Neil Gorsuch. I know the judges. That's all. Those are all. Those are all important things that we can say are much better than they would have been under Hillary. And he's not Hillary. But we do expect more than that, right? But it's okay to expect more than just not Hillary. But also say I'm willing to give it time. There's a reason the president's elected for four years and not four months. I'm willing to give this some time and don't and and not lose sight of the fact that this is disruptive and disruptive means there will be uh, people who have ruffled feathers. There will be people who are angry. There'll be. And obviously it's reached a point of, of mass psychosis when it comes to Trump. But he has not yet abandoned his willingness to stick his thumb in the eye of the opposition and while I know that some of my, my fellow conservatives I very much respect say that that we should stop fixating on that, I'm not saying that justifies everything. I'm not saying that's the end goal. But it, it is worthwhile. Because when you had eight years of Obama and a uniform media narrative around him that everything was everything he was doing was awesome, and the culture in this country in those eight years was becoming... What we're seeing now today, what we're seeing today, but willing to finally call out, which is the uh, the intolerance towards free speech, the intolerance towards religion, the totalitarian impulses of the American left were allowed to fester and grow under eight years of Obama and to begin to set that right and to balance it out is going to take more than four months of a Trump presidency. But I will say that just Trump being Trump and having the people that he has in office each day is a little revolution against the eight years of entrenched progressive orthodoxy of the Obama administration. It's not sufficient. It's not everything, but it's important. And I don't think we should lose sight of that because I'm I'm noticing some who are already concerned that maybe this is just all going to fall apart. I don't think we're, we're not there. We're certainly not there yet. I don't think we're going to get there. And I think it's important to get some perspective here and remember 
what is important about this political moment in time? Why is Trumpism important and how did we get here? Let's go to a quick break. We'll be right back. 844-900-BUCK. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825. Also check out bucksexton.com. Please post some stories there throughout the day. Um, and I'll be writing there this week. Um, so the travel ban is back in the news uh, because the Ninth Circuit is looking at this thing. You got a three-judge Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel, which is the second court over the last week to look at the Trump directive that um, bans people from entering the United States from six Muslim-majority countries. To call it a Muslim ban is inaccurate for reasons we've gone over many times. It's six countries, not the close to 50 countries that are Muslim-majority in the world. 40-something, I think, is the number. Um, And it's a tiny percentage overall of the uh, world's Muslim population, and there are exceptions in it. And and I think that there's uh, some degree of um, criticism coming from uh, from conservatives now on this one, from Republicans, I should say. Maybe they're conservative, maybe they're not. Uh, why why waste time with this? And you know, on the one hand, I'd say we can't hold Trump to fulfill his promises, and then uh, and, and then when he tries to fulfill a promise, say, well, why is he trying to fulfill the promise? Right? So he said he was going to do this on the campaign trail. And here we are now, and he is trying to do this, which is to uh, lessen the chances that we would be hit with uh, terrorism from one of these countries. And it comes after we saw the refugee flow into Europe resulting in, uh, first of all, a lot of criminal problems, but also... um, there were ISIS efforts to use the refugee flow to, to infiltrate Europe. So that was a real thing that was ongoing uh, and a concern that if the president did not address that, if President Trump did not take action to shore up U.S. immigration policy such that it wasn't an open door for someone from the Islamic State to penetrate into, well, I shouldn't even say penetrate, just waltz on into this country and engage in an attack. He said he wanted better vetting. He said he wanted to just pause this, uh, pause the uh, travel from six countries. And if he didn't do that, I'm sure the Democrats would be calling him incompetent and demanding impeachment. But they demand impeachment so much that it's hard to know when, uh, when they're really serious or if this is just now some knee-jerk response we get from them all the time. I, you know, I, I don't like Trump, therefore I will call him a fascist and demand his impeachment. This has been normalized on the left. But the travel ban is uh, very interesting uh, because the travel ban is uh, bringing together a number of important aspects of this presidency. One, the judiciary used as... Or, or seen by the left as a break on Trump's agenda. Um, but also it raises some questions about what the left really values and cares about and what risks it's willing to take in its multicultural diversity crusade, including risks to U.S. security. I'm going to talk to you a lot more about that on the flip side of this break. Team, stay with me. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Another round in the bout, another uh, round in the fight ongoing of the travel ban, the Trump travel ban, the ban that is not a ban, the ban that is a temporary stay or a temporary uh, hold on travel from six of the world's Muslim-majority countries. And the Democrats view this, of course, as an opportunity to not just stymie the Trump administration's agenda, but to uh, relitigate, literally relitigate, one of their favorite points from the election, which is that Trump is a Trump is a racist, Trump is a bigot, Trump is an Islamophobe. That was something that when I was... Uh, over at CNN and trying to speak about policy matters, all you had to do was go on TV and say Trump's a racist, Trump's a bigot, and people would clap and say, oh, you're so wise, you're so smart. Thank you so much for that astute analysis. And I'd sit there like, uh, pretty pretty sure radical Islamic terrorism is a thing that we that we might be able to talk about at some length. And those who believe in the truth over what feels good, the truth over political correctness, the truth over... Worship of diversity as a kind of secular religion. They see what goes on with the media and even with the Obama administration and the unwillingness to be truthful and honest about where there's more likely to be a threat of terrorism and uh, how we should deal with this. And they say, I just can't trust these people. And they're right. They can't because the primary goal of national security is placed behind the goal of progressive diversity and uh, what is really a, a, a relativism, a form of relativism, which is, well, you know, there's terrorism. Everyone commits terrorism. Uh, I remember some years back, you know, what was it? There was there were some columns even after 9-11 or people saying, well, you know, we, we still need to be worried about Timothy McVeigh and Christian terrorism. One, Timothy McVeigh is not, not a Christian, certainly wasn't doing it in the name of Christianity, but there's the, the false equivalency game, something that they, they love to do on this. And occasionally I'll pop up somewhere and get a chance to debate whether Islamic terrorism, radical Islamic terrorism, um, although if it's terrorism committed by somebody who's a Muslim in the name of Islam, I think you could call it Islamic terrorism. It doesn't mean that all of Islam is terrorism. And, you know, we... You got to jump through all these semantic hoops and games. A very small percentage of people of the Islamic faith are terrorists. We all know this. We're adults. We can have an adult conversation about this. But if you, you see, if you don't, it's it's like uh, it's like not giving one of those warnings on a commercial where people are you know horseback riding on the beach, and it's like, well, this new drug may give you you know dry mouth, heart palpitations, you know, and they go through this long list of, you know, your your teeth may turn yellow and your hair may fall out and you're this and that. And these are, it's for, for legal reasons, you got to go through this stuff or it's, you know, you could get sued, you get in trouble. It's also how in some of those commercials for different financial products, they run script at the bottom of the page at the end. You're like, well, nobody could read that, but I guess you got to put it up there. Whatever it is you're putting up there on the screen, nobody can read it. Uh, when you're discussing radical Islamic terrorism. How about just jihadism? There we go. When you're discussing jihadism, you have to put in the provisos and the uh, the, the prefaces or else you can be accused of bigotry, Islamophobia, and then, and then you're automatic, then you're on defense and 
everything else you say goes away. So, the, the, But the travel ban is really about whether Trump and the Republicans are racist. It's it's not about security. It's not about constitutionalism. It's let's try, let's, let's have a big legal battle over whether Trump is anti-Muslim. That's how the left sees it. Everything else is noise and legalese and, uh, and pretense. The reality is that this is about whether Trump is anti-Muslim. And uh, you have Judge Ninth Circuit Court Judge Neil Katyal uh, saying that, well, saying a few things, including that Congress is not going back to the way it used to be. Congress said in 1965, we are changing fundamentally what our immigration system is about, and we are not going to engage in nationality-based discrimination anymore. And that extends even to non-immigrant visas. Uh, we, we do make all kinds of distinctions about uh, Im- immigrants, so I don't really know where this guy is, is getting this. Um, they changed the formula in 1965, but there are some countries from which we get a lot more immigrants than there are other countries. So it's not like it's shared among all nations and we give them a, an equal number of visas based on the percentage of the global population or something. No, there are some countries that have preference over others in all of this. Um, and this uh, this judge, though, and, and the judges that are with him are looking first and foremost at whether or not Trump's comments on the campaign trail mean that his intent is discriminatory. Now, this is a a point of legal analysis for the left that extends well beyond this particular order. In fact, never mind just discriminatory intent. Uh, we could also look at disparate impact. And you're like, well, Buck, what's disparate impact? So discriminatory intent, before I get to disparate impact, would be that even if the even if the words of the law aren't discriminating, the effect of the law is 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 supposed to be discriminatory, right? So, and you'd have to prove this somehow, and uh, that's what they're going through right now. Uh, disparate impact is not only does the left object to a will, will the left object if they think there's a discriminatory intent, but even if the dis- intent is not discriminatory. But a law affects a population negatively. Of course, it has to be one of the previously identified and protected communities, whatever that may mean. Uh, the left gets to determine these designations, not me. Uh, if it affects a a victimized community in the in the sort of leftist version of of, of America, um, then it can be disparate impact. So you can pass a law that doesn't on its face is not does in no way discriminates in the text of the law it says you know nobody can do x nobody in america can do x and then people will say well if you're really saying that because only this group of pop only this group of people even wants to do x for example then that's discriminatory intent if it's well this there's one group that is more harmed by its inability to do x than others that's just that can be disparate impact. So a, a law can't just be a law that we all read and, and obey. They view this as a grounds for um, trying to balance and litigate and fight over the impact of the law. And with the immigration order from the Trump administration, the real question becomes for them, right? Not it's not does this does this make national security better? 
Is there would a reasonable commander in chief? Well, forget about a reasonable commander in chief. Does a commander in chief have the authority to do this? As we saw with the Comey firing last week, even when there's no question whatsoever that the president is allowed to do something, when this president does it, it's unprecedented. It's terrible. It's scary. It's oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? So they won't even concede though that the president has the right to do what he did here as commander-in-chief, in this case, um, deciding uh, that there are some countries that are more prone to terrorism. And, of course, he borrowed that list from the Obama administration, and anybody with access to newspapers or Google could tell you that there is a greater concern. There would be a greater concern of radicalization and uh, transnational jihadist terrorism from those countries than, say, from... Uh, Norway. Um, so that's where this all comes together. Here's one part of this discussion, this one one part of this debate that that I think is often overlooked. So you got these judges, and they're saying we're we're not going back. Well, let, let me give you the Trump the uh, the administration has the the U.S. solicitor arguing in favor of, and then I'll give you my my little special take on what I think this tells us. Clip that what he's concerned about, he's really two things. One, the ties between terrorist groups and these six countries that were listed by Congress in the previous administration, and the concern that the governments of those countries and the deteriorating conditions in places like Iran and Syria may mean we're not getting reliable information. And so what the president found was he said, look, I find that it would be detrimental to let in their nationals for a brief period of 90 days while I ascertain whether the vetting procedures that we have in place for these countries are actually adequate. So he wasn't saying, I find that it would be detrimental because they're all dangerous or they all are potential terrorists or anything like that. He was saying, in the face of uncertainty about whether we're getting good information from their governments so that we can screen them out in the visa process, I'm going to put a temporary hold subject to the, to the visa waiver. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? And yet here we are being told that it's a, it's a Muslim ban. People writing editorials in major newspapers calling it a Muslim ban, even though it is clearly not. And that is a dishonest thing to say about this. That the previous statements of somebody who's party to a legal action that has nothing to do with the specific legal action uh, could somehow be brought to bear on the case opens up a, a tremendous uh, uh, number of of problems. I mean, th- this is a legal Pandora's box because, for example, I mean, if, if you sign a contract with somebody and let's say on a home and they want to get out of it and now what? Can, and even though everything in, in the contract is legitimate and was duly executed, are they allowed to go back and find something that you you know wrote on Facebook three years ago that uh, shows that, you know, you don't like you know, you, you don't like Unitarians or something, and it turns out they're Unitarian, and so maybe you're discriminating against them, and that's why you're not going to, you know, renew their lease or, you know, whatever. So can you just bring up stuff that has nothing to do with, uh, that that is irrelevant to the case at hand? I mean, the answer now, uh, as we see it, is yes. There's another point, though, that I think is uh, often overlooked here. We are led to believe by our own media that there is this bias against uh, on the right with conservatives, people and Trump at the at the height of the Republican Party, but the Republican Party and uh, and conservatives and 
the alt-right, which is a much exaggerated force in, in politics and a much exaggerated uh, ideology in terms of its impact. Um, but we're, we are told that they are anti-Muslim, uh, mostly out of, out of racial animus, and that the concerns that people pretend to have, or the concerns people have over terrorism and the Islamic community and the disparate impact, you could say, the Islamic community has when it comes to terrorism around the world, I think it's a fair usage of disparate impact, um, we're, we're led to believe by our own media, and I mean, the, the preening and self-righteousness over at, at CNN and MSNBC on this topic is, is, exceeds almost any other. I mean, this is, they, they loved, oh, there's no, there's no connection between uh, Islamic belief and, and, and jihadist terrorism. There's no connection. I mean, and then you could sit there and be like, well, I mean, we could go through how every major Muslim country that anyone can at least think of off the top of their head around the world has at least one uh, major terrorist group that certainly believes it's Islamic in it. You know, we, we could go through the State Department's counterterrorism uh, report and the numbers of fatal attacks, lethal attacks around the world, and how many of those are committed by Islamic terrorist groups. I mean, you, you could go through that whole process of argument, and it's worthwhile because they start to stutter and stammer and just call you a racist and a xenophobe when you do. Um, but then there's also, I think, a much more... Uh, overlooked approach to this, and, that, and that's the following. If the uh, American right, if conservatives, Republicans, maybe I don't know if you throw libertarians in there, it depends on the day, uh, if they're so opposed to Islam because it's it's racial, meaning it's a skin color thing, it's a non-white thing, um, isn't it interesting that the Trump administration uh, is not trying to ban um, or, 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 you know, was not in any way accused of trying to limit uh, people from or or target people from countries that are also non-white and yet and there's no counterterrorism concern about them right you'll you'll notice that we have in America roughly the same number of uh, Buddhists as we who, who are predominantly non-white as we do Muslims Rough, I mean, uh, less, but in the same ballpark. I mean, there are about three to four million Muslim Americans in this country. You've got about three million-ish uh, Buddhists in this country. Um, and, I mean, these numbers are inexact, but this is these are what the estimates are based on census data and all the rest. You know, you've got over a million uh, Sikhs who are South Asian. And so ethnically are would, you know, different religion and culture and uh, different in many cases in, in language than, say, uh, a an Islamist from Pakistan, uh, from Pakistan. But in, in terms of ethnicity, you're starting to you're starting to uh, get very uh, limited in your ability to uh, to differentiate. But there's not an there's no uh, anti Sikh sentiment in this country. There's no anti Buddhist sentiment in this country. There's no uh, targeting of those communities when it comes to counterterrorism operations in a way that the ACLU is always screaming about. And I just think it's fair to ask, well, why is that? If it's really that the uh, Muslim community is is persecuted by conservatives in America because. Uh, conservatives just don't like not non-white people, really, which is which is what the left says. This is their this is their line of argument. This is what they say. Uh, but there's not a similar targeting of many other quote targeting. Right. There's not a similar focus on many other non-white groups 
And in fact, conservatives tend to be very welcoming of legal immigrants, no matter what their skin color is. So if this is a function of bigotry and not national security concern, when we are looking at Muslim-majority countries and even the uh, Muslim population as an incubator of possible terrorism in very small numbers and as a very small percentage of the whole, why is there that disparity? I, you just, you, you'll notice that, right? No one's ever sitting around saying we need to set up counterterrorism units or look into other um, non-white immigrant communities in this country. And so, well, why is that? And maybe, maybe the focus on Islamic um, extremism and radical Islamic terrorism has to do with national security and not bigotry. All right, we're hitting a break. We'll be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. We've got breaking news, my friends. And it might be breaking fake news, but right now everyone's running with it in all the major newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. Here's the Times headline. Trump revealed highly classified intelligence to Russia in break with ally, officials say. And this is what the body of the piece starts with. President Trump boasted about Highly classified intelligence in a meeting with the Russian foreign minister and ambassador last week, providing details that could expose the source of the information and the manner in which it was collected, a current and former American government official said. The intelligence disclosed by Mr. Trump in a meeting with Sergei V. Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador to the United States, was, an about, was about an Islamic State plot, according to the officials. A foreign ally that closely guards its own secrets provided the information which was considered so sensitive that American officials did not share it widely with the United States government or pass it on to allies. Um, what is going on with this? Certainly worth us digging into it a bit more because by the time we get the details otherwise, true or not, the damage will have been done to this administration. We've got... Michael Pregent on the phone now to uh, work through this with us. He's a foreign policy and national security expert and adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. Michael, great to have you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. Uh, what, what do we know about this? I mean, already I'm seeing uh, reports that H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, said, quote, at no time were any intel sources or methods discussed and no military ops disclosed that were not already known publicly. So why why is everyone acting like this is a you know a, a four alarm fire? Well, the thing is that quote is actually from the Washington Post piece. So that quote itself, coming from H.R. McMaster, actually um, goes against the headline. It actually refutes the story. Uh, I've worked with H.R. A lot of people trust him across the aisle. He is a solid individual, and if the president was doing something he shouldn't have done, H.R. would have, the leaks would have actually been H.R. erupts during meeting when Trump reveals classified information. So I think that that quote from H.R. that's in the Washington Post article refutes the, refutes the story, in my, in my opinion. And do we, do we know anything else about, I mean, what I want to know, uh, first and foremost, is how, how could this information you know who are the i know we're, we're not supposed to disclose sources of the methods but i mean the source for the washington post piece meaning who who's relaying this kind of information it i feel like people keep bringing up that trump and the intel community have a difficult relationship well it sounds like people on the inside keep on trying to undermine trump by talking to the press well we know how often 
you have a, an anonymous source from the intelligence community. Let's wait and, and see if there are anonymous sources from the intelligence community that say HR is lying. That's not going to happen. You are not going to get the CIA or the NSA or DIA or the DNI to come out and say that the National Security Advisor is lying. So let's wait for that. But, you know, the statement in itself, you know, sources and methods, that's, that's what the president has to protect. But the president's still authorized to discuss classified information with whoever he, he is actually a declass authority. And that's a separate issue. But for this headline to come out and say that he did this, and of course the Russian, everything's about Russia, but to have this quote by HR in there, I think that's, that's the, the most powerful uh, rebuttal you can have to the article itself, that HR McMaster, a well-respected uh, man who's currently the National Security Advisor, says it's not true. And he's somebody who's also been written about in recent uh, weeks as willing to challenge Trump and even be kind of a pain to Trump when it comes to some issues of policy and how they discuss terrorism. And right. I mean, so H.R. McMaster feels like he's able to speak up and say and say his mind. Yeah, I, I've sat in rooms where, where H.R. McMaster spoke his mind in front of General Petraeus and General Petraeus said, I got it, H.R. I got it. All right. I got it. So H.R.'s. The, the right man to tell the president when he's doing something wrong. And if HR thought that the president was giving the Russians intel that they shouldn't have had, we would have had anonymous sources from those meetings or from the White House or from wherever saying that HR was upset with Trump. And we're not hearing that. And I'm waiting to hear the IC refute McMaster. And that's not likely to happen. Moving, uh, if we can, to the, the, the broader Trump IC issues that, that still are, are out there, um, uh, Michael, I, I contend, and I have for a while, that if there, because we know we have the, the Sally Yates testimony where she said she couldn't confirm or deny the existence of, inf- uh, of information that uh, would lead one to believe that the Trump uh, campaign colluded with Russia— uh, two things. One, do, do you think that that response was completely uh, did, did that pass the smell test for you? And two, uh, do you would you say it's fair that if there was information that showed that Trump was working with the Russians, we would know about it? Meaning if anybody in the intel community had seen that somehow it would have found its way already to The Washington Post or The New York Times. I have no doubt that if there was collusion, it would have leaked already just because of the that that relationship that you're talking about between the intelligence community and the Trump administration. We saw the leak with General Flynn. Uh, that was highly classified information. That was that was signals intelligence that was leaked uh, about um, General Flynn's conversation with the Russians. If there was collusion, again, DNI Clapper said there wasn't, and then recently has now excused himself by saying, well, I left in uh, December 2016, so I don't know what happened after that. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it wouldn't have been leaked already and because it hasn't been leaked and because it's so paramount that it, that it, that that connection be made, that it would have been leaked by now. Uh, I, I, again, if there's evidence, I'll be the first one to say there's evidence and people should go to jail for it. But this right now appears to be a, 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 a story without legs. And this Washington Post piece is the same thing. Speaking to Michael Pregen, he's a foreign policy and national security expert and an adjunct fellow at the uh, Hudson Institute. 
Um, Michael, what did you think of Clapper's statement, uh, former DNI Clapper over the weekend, saying the following? The developments of the past week very bothersome, very disturbing to me. Uh, I think in many ways our institutions are under assault, both externally, and that's, that's the big news here is the Russian interference in our election system. And I think as well our institutions are under assault internally. Internally from the president? Exactly. Because he's firing the checks and balances. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the founding fathers uh, in their genius uh, created a system of three co-equal branches, branches of government and, uh, and, and a built-in system of checks and balances. And I feel as though that's, that's under assault and, and is eroding. Are you surprised at how quiet Republicans on Capitol Hill have been? Clapper is not a constitutional expert, but what is he referring to with the assault on the institutions? I I just, what do you think he's getting at? Well, I was also an intelligence officer for 28 years, so so I worked for Clapper as well when he was was ODNI. So what I would say to that is, um, the Russian interference at best was was proxies using, are hacking into the ZNC and also hacking into Podesta's emails to tell us what we already knew about. Deborah Wiseman Schultz and Hillary Clinton. At least the, the emails that were leaked corresponded with stuff that was already out there in legitimate media, meaning New York Times, Washington Post, and, and the Wall Street uh, Journal. Uh, and I, I said legitimate media, and of course we're talking about a Washington Post story here. But, but the one thing that I would say about constitutional scholar Clapper is that the Constitution gives the president the right to pick uh, who's in his cabinet and who actually represents uh, different uh, organizations within government. Uh, three hours before Clapper was fired, CNN ran a piece criticizing him for, for getting it wrong on the number of emails uh, sent to to uh, Huma Abedin's husband. And and they were saying that he was incompetent. And then three hours later, Trump fires him and everybody's on his on the defense. So it depends on the hour of the day, whether you're a, whether you are a a fan of Comey. And I think, I think Clapper's uh, trying to recover from his testimony because he didn't even know there was a counterinsurgent, uh, counterintel investigation on Flynn that started in July of 2015. When we say 17 intelligence agencies and the and the ODNI is in charge of those other 16, you would think that Clapper would know that the FBI is actually investigating one of his former DIA directors. Yeah, what'd you think of Yates saying that she couldn't confirm or deny the existence of because she was saying that it's it's classified. But uh, I, the, telling us how she would know that might be classified, but saying that there's evidence of collusion, she could have evidence of collusion because somebody mailed her a letter that has, you know, uh, <laughs> that has the evidence in it. I don't know. I mean, I, I just didn't buy that. I thought that was a, I thought that was a dodge. I mean, I, I just think that she implied that because the National Security Advisor Flynn at the time had a conversation with the Russian ambassador on sanctions that somehow Flynn could be compromised or blackmailed for that conversation, a conversation that, that would be easily dealt with had that been leaked or had that been any attempt at a blackmail position. So I just think she's exaggerated the, the level of Russian influ- influence in this election. Again, we're Americans. Uh, look what they do to Eastern Europe. They, they, they intimidate, they assassinate, they, they pay ransoms, they pay bribes, not ransoms, they, they, they kidnap people in order to get ransoms, they intimidate, they do a lot of things. In this case, they had, it, at best, they had proxies 
uh, get it cracked into the DNC and to Podesta's emails through a phishing scheme and leak emails on Hillary Clinton and Wiseman Schultz that were already known in, in, in open source media. Yeah, it's not even a good plot. I've been saying this now for, for months. It, it, this isn't, it's not like they came up with some brilliant strategy that was clearly going to turn the election for Trump. To take the risk of collusion, for which there is still no evidence, but to take that risk of collusion based on what happened would just be insane to me, Michael. That, that's what I can't get beyond. It doesn't even make sense, even if you thought Trump was willing to uh, play that that dirty. The irony is the Comey letter was 100 times more damaging to Hillary Clinton than the Russian interference. And, and now Comey's being defended. I think, in my personal opinion, I think that Comey was trying to use the office to do whatever he could to show that the Russians played more of a role than he, his letter did in order to protect his reputation. I think the administration just got tired of that. And when do you, where do you think this all goes, by the way, this, this uh, effort to, to undermine the whole Trump administration with the Russian investigation and, and also with uh, reports about how he handles classified and, and his inability to maneuver through the national security <laughs> side of things? He's the president. He's the he's the top declass authority on intel. Uh, even the Washington Post article says if he did share it, it's still legal because he's the president and he could declassify. He can share intel that he wants to. And McMaster, McMaster's source or his quote is the most important thing. No sources and methods were revealed. Nothing was said to the Russians that wasn't already known in in public media. And that's what the article says, and if people actually read the whole article instead of jumping on the he- headline, they would see that the article actually deconstructs itself. So credit to the authors by actually for actually including H.R. McMaster's quote in there and actually saying that the president can actually declass Intel products and it's well within his legal rights to do speaking, so. Speaking of Michael Prejean of the Hudson Institute, um, he's foreign policy national security expert and has, uh, has had a long time in the business. Uh, Michael, one more for you before we let you get back to everything else you got going on here. Uh, when people say the IC is against Trump um, and and that's indicative of, well, I, I don't know, it's it, it shows that Trump can't handle national security or that Trump can't be trusted or whatever. What's your response to that? Well, listen, uh, I've always said that Trump will be the most accountable president we've ever had. If he screws up, he's not going to have Republicans line up behind him and support him. You're going to have a truly bipartisan effort to hold the president accountable. This is not that. Uh, the intel community, again, the, the operators in the field, uh, in my, from what I've taught, people I've talked to, are, are happy with the Trump in position. Our special operators in the field are happy with the Trump as a commander-in-chief. Mattis and McMaster are happy in the commander-in-chief that they have. Uh, we can't defend tweets. We can't defend statements. But you look at the people that are making these decisions in the intelligence uh, community and also in our military, and they are the right people. From Pompeo as CIA director, Coates as DNI, Mattis, Secretary of Defense, and McMaster, National Security Advisor. Those are solid people. They're credible people, and they're the ones making these decisions. Michael Pregent of the Hudson Institute. Check out his latest on Hudson.org. Anywhere else you want to direct folks, Michael? Um, we, we just need to pay attention. You know, I think that this information was shared with Russia on ISIS, so they would actually do something in Syria. Russia is no ally in the fight against ISIS in Syria. This may be a way to call them on it by sharing something that they should actually deal with, and when they don't, 
this administration will know that, that Russia is not an ally in the fight against ISIS. They're simply there to keep Assad in power. All right. Mike, great to have you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, and, uh, team, we'll be right back. So this might be breaking fake news. We've got National Security Advisor McMaster who came out. And this is this is just happening while we're on air. Who came out and uh, read a sixty-second long, well, basically sixty-second long that whole Washington Post, New York Times report about um, telling the Russians classified stuff is just a giant pile of crap. It's just nonsense. It's it's not true. Hey, let's just let's say it, everybody. You can say it with me. One, two, three. Fake news. It's fake news. You can say, oh, but they're relying on sources and they're reporting it in good faith. Uh, it either happened or it didn't. And if it didn't happen, and if it, and now they're going to have to call McMaster a liar as well. Uh, if it didn't happen, then they've reported something that is uh, that is not that is not true. And they've created a story where there is no story. That is fake news. It's maybe not Russian propaganda level fake news about, you know, creating a story out of whole cloth with no sources, but it's still fake. It's maybe just less fake than some other stuff. But yeah, McMaster saying that it is completely, uh, completely without merit um, and read a 60 second response on it. Uh, you also have I'm trying to see where we had another. Uh, other White House officials have come out to talk about this one. They're all saying the same thing, which is that this is nothing. Uh, at no time were any intelligence sources or methods discussed and no military operations. I told you about that before. Um, yep, that's it. That's it. Uh, also, you've got administration officials all saying this. Uh, Deputy National Security Advisor Dina Powell says, flatly, this story is false. And the president only discussed the common threats that both countries faced. So, which is it, everybody? Is this a story or not? Pretty sure it's not. And yet, main headline of the New York Times, main headline of the Washington Post. Here's an important part of all this. They, even with uncertainty about the story already, if there is a retraction tomorrow, a lot of those reading this New York Times, Washington, uh, Washington Post headline about Trump disclosing classified information to the Russians in a meeting with them and an open in a meeting with them that he's, you know, other people are around for, they'll still believe it tomorrow. They won't change their minds on this one. Uh, it doesn't matter. Even if the times and the Washington post printer retraction, which they will not do at, at best, they may put an addendum to the story and say, Hey, this is the latest on this, you know, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and w they'll do a slow walk back, but they will not retract because a retraction is too much of a, of a, of admitting that, yeah, we just made a bunch of stuff up. Even when they did, that doesn't matter. They won't, they won't do a full scale retraction, but here we are. It's, it's the, it's the number one breaking news story across the country right now, as I'm on air, that the. Uh, president of the United States was just now it's it's not illegal. The president can say anything really in terms of classified, um, but that he was reckless and stupid and incompetent. That's what they're saying. That's what the implication is. And that's what the that's why the stories are getting so much traction. And 
Um, of course, it's with a Russian, right? That that shouldn't be lost in anyone either. Oh, he's telling the Russians more than he should. Why would he do that? Again, motivation is a very uh, powerful piece that you need to keep in mind whenever doing analysis. And there's no reason for Trump to tell the Russians sensitive information about anything uh, in this in this kind of a forum. And we've already got major denials, including from McMaster, who is willing to call Trump out and stand up to him on issues when he disagrees with him. And this is a, a pretty definitive, you know, one way or the other thing. So, you know, what, what do we call it when the media runs with a story that's not a real story? I, I need someone to give me a term. If it's not fake news, it's got to be something. I'm pretty sure it's fake news, though. We'll be right back. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Do you think it's fake news that Donald Trump revealed classified to the Russians? 844-900-BUCK. Let me know what you think about this. It's the main news story now that is uh, catching traction on websites across the country. Here's what the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, had to say. Master, let's listen in. Including threats to civil aviation. At no time, at no time, were intelligence sources or methods discussed. And the president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. Two other senior officials who were present, including the Secretary of State, remember the meeting the same way and have said so. They're on the record account should outweigh those of anonymous sources. And I I was in the room. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. That's what he's saying. So is McMaster a liar? Or did the press decide they were going to run with this before they got all their facts straight? Because it hurts Trump. It makes Trump look bad not illegal but makes him look bad if it makes trump look bad they want to run with it this is a compulsion for the media they can't help themselves they think they're they think they're doing the work of shedding light on democracy by undermining the president of this country let that one simmer for a minute in your mind dave in arizona what's up my friend oh shields high what a show thank you dave no I listen to you. I get so fired up, and I finally decided to call and ask you, because I've thought this a lot of times, listening to your commentary. At what point does this concerted effort of PACs, of fake news, of all this deception, when does this rise to a level of, like you just said, undermining and overthrowing the legitimate government elected by the people, when does this become treason in your your mind? I want to hear your opinion. Thank you. Uh, well, it, it won't amount words that, you know, you, you can advocate for the impeachment and the imprisonment of the president through uh, judicial proceedings legally. Right. You, you can say, I want the president to be impeached. Uh, you can say, I want the president to be impeached and prosecuted. Um, but it's irresponsible to do so. I think it hurts the country to do so, but it's not illegal uh, to advocate for that necessarily. So um, that's, you know, the, the, the media is trying to uh, turn public opinion so far against this president that, I don't know, I think they want him to resign 
And then Mike Pence becomes president, and they might they might even dislike Pence, uh, or I should say, they might dislike Pence policies even more than Trump policies. I, I don't know if they realize what they'd be getting into with, with a <laughs> with a Pence presidency, and they wouldn't be able to to hammer him for uh, you know colorful language or a a difficult personal past or anything. I mean, Pence is a very stand up guy with an impeccable record. But yeah, I mean, Dave, they they are definitely trying to uh, create a narrative that will um, undermine the president and destroy his legitimacy. And it's a it's a very unsettling thing when one political party is dedicated to uh, imprisoning the the current president, which is what they would like to see Trump in prison. You know, they don't just disagree with his policies. And people say, well, look at Hillary, lock her up, lock her up. Well, one, she's not the president. Two, uh, she did stuff that was a close call even for James Comey in terms of whether it was criminal or not. So we all can see that it's um, it's it's concerning, my friend. But, yeah, it's it's not treason. It's just it's undermine it's undermining the elected government. But it's not treason because you're you're allowed to say that the, the president should be impeached. You just can't say the president should be overthrown by force. That's the difference. Yeah, but Fox, when it's a when it's a when it's a conspiracy and it's so concerted and so well coordinated across lines, that's my point. This is obviously a, a massive effort, and that's what is so concerning. Um, yep, I, 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 it's concerning. It is definitely concerning. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for calling in, Dave in Arizona. Appreciate it, Matt in North Carolina. What's up, Matt? Hey, Buck. I have stopped using the term fake news. I use the term glasses after Stephen Glass. Huh. That's a little bit vague. I'm not sure everybody would get that one, but I but I in I appreciate your enthusiasm. Shattered Glass is a pretty good movie about well, he was a New Republic reporter, right? Wasn't the New Republic and, and he was just making up stories? He he was totally fabricating stories, no evidential proof. Uh, just he made a name for himself doing that. Yeah, and I think that's what our media—that's what our media is doing today. I hear you, Matt, North Carolina man. Thank you for calling in, Matt. Getting creative with the terminology there—a glassist. I'm not sure that's going to catch on, Matt, but I, I like where your head's at. In that movie, Shattered Glass, which has—gosh, oh now I'm gonna—I'm gonna messing mess it up. I think the guy plays like young Skywalker in one of the one of the Star Wars reboot movies, or not reboots, but one of the new Star Wars movies. Uh, fascinating thing that occurred. So here, here's the the storyline there, and I do think this is worthwhile for us to just uh, reminisce on for a second. So you had a reporter for I think his name is Stephen Glass, and he's a reporter for the New Republic, which is a left wing site and uh, or a left wing magazine, very long standing left wing progressive magazine in this country. And wasn't it the New Republic? Am I am I getting that one wrong? I don't want to get that wrong. Hold on, let me let me make sure. I hate when I have to. Um, do the on the spot check, but I, I can't. I can't get everything right on on the fly here. Yeah, New Republic, like I thought, Stephen Glass. So this guy created sources to make his stories cool. He he fabricated whole events, and it went on for a long time before he was caught. He was kind of a star reporter for a while over there. You know, the New York Times had someone also uh, who was fabricating stories, and they fired him. Um, but Stephen Glass was fabricating stories. The New Republic. And here's my contention. In the pre-internet era, pre-smartphone, pre-internet era, I mean, if you go back, uh, certainly in the in the 90s, I mean, I can't speak to other eras because I wasn't alive and, and wasn't old enough to know what's going on. 
people were making up stuff all the time. I I, I can't pro- I look I can't prove it, and I'm not, that's why I'm not pointing out any particular paper or any individual. But there were I, I can assure you there was a uh, a widespread practice, and we'll never really get to the bottom of it. We'll never know of journalists. Uh, you know, I'm sure the journalists talked to somebody, but that quote that was just so perfect. Uh, as you know, especially when we're talking about anonymous sources, or uh, yeah, I, I think they were making stuff up a lot. I think it was much more commonplace than anybody wants to. But how are you going to check? How are you going to know? Yeah, I stopped and I saw. I talked to Bob, who saw the saw the car crash, and Bob was like, "Oh gosh, that car crash is you know it's like Armageddon." You know, I mean that's obviously a s- silly example, but you know what I'm saying. Who knows who Bob is? You know, this is a first name. How are you going to check on that? And and who's going to take the time? Um, I don't think they were fabricating whole events. That would be dangerous. But fabricating quotes, fabricating sources. How difficult do you think it would be? And now think about this even in the context of today with Trump and the reporting on him. And I'm not saying that there's the sources are made up with the Russia Trump classified thing that they're uh, putting forward at the New York Times and Washington Post. But. Do you think it'd be hard to let, let's say there's a, a journalist, a theory among journalists right now in D.C. that Trump, for whatever reason, uh, said some stuff he shouldn't have to the Russians. Um, who's going to you, you're not going to check anonymous sources. And if you do, then you start to run into some very, very sticky First Amendment arguments. So, um, you know, meaning if the government starts trying to check on that stuff. So, you know, it's. I just think it's easy. It, it's much easier than anybody wants to believe that it is. Uh, and I think they cover for people, too. People don't want to ask the question. As long as the copy looks good, as long as the story gets traction and, and it speaks to the narrative that they want to tell, that's what really matters to them. John in Mississippi, what's up, sir? Hey, Buck. Hey, Buck. Uh, you have had Andrew McCarthy on your show before, and I, I'm, I admire this guy. He's smart. Many times. Andrew is very smart and a very good guy. Yes, he is. And he wrote recently uh, an article about the problem with the special prosecutor, which is another word for um, 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 a special counsel, and he's appointed by the president. So if the president appoints him and then the special prosecutor or the uh, uh, council uh, agrees that the president did nothing wrong, well, then people will say, well, of course he's going to say that he's appointed by the president. But uh, what I wanted to tell you is uh, he points out that collusion is not a crime. And uh, to quote him, to quote him, pardon all that noise, it's not a federal crime for a foreign country to intrude in American elections. And uh, countries do this all the time. It's not illegal. And it's such Yeah, a, what, what are we going to do, John? Arrest Russia? That'd be tough. Yeah, yeah. And as far as the media colluding together, that's not illegal either. They do it all the time. It's simply not illegal. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. They're colluding. I also, I I don't want to make arguments and debates, uh, and I I don't like to make words illegal, except in the most extreme and blatant and clear circumstances, right? So the the moment that people start talking about how, oh, well, we're going to find evidence of collusion, evidence of collusion, I've been talking about this on my show, John, what would that even look like? If Trump sat down and, or let's say Trump himself sat down with a a Russian intelligence officer, whether he knew he was a Russian intelligence officer or not, and this is just a theoretical example, right? I'm just making this up. But he sat down with him, the Russian guy's like, yeah, we're going to do some stuff 
to help you in the campaign. And Trump said, okay, that's not illegal. I mean, because Trump could say, no, don't Trump could say, no, don't do that. It doesn't mean anything. They're going to do it anyway. So, you know, they maybe what they're hoping they can get out is is some evidence that will be politically damaging because from a from a criminal aspect of it, I, I don't see how there'd be, you know, unless Trump was was hanging out in Moscow doing a little hacking of Podesta's account himself. I'm sorry, but there's no you know, there's just not going to be a crime here, and I'm pretty sure Trump wasn't doing that. So, John, I'm with you, man. We're going to get to Andy's been up to some other stuff recently. He's been busy. We'll get Andy McCarthy back on the show soon though. He's uh Yeah. He's he's a Freedom Hut favorite. Andy McCarthy. Get, get Andrew back. He's good. Yeah, he is very good. We'll get we'll get him back soon. Shield side, John. Thank you very much for calling in. Uh, team, we are going to hit a quick break. We'll talk a bit about the press conference today, and then we'll get uh, a little bit of a libertarian perspective on what's going on in the world right now from one of my friends at Reason.com, and uh, then a bunch of other stuff, including we'll talk about books and Mother's Day, and third hour is always a little bit of a smorgasbord. It's a fun word to say. We'll be right back. Associated Press headline on Twitter here. White House National Security Advisor denies Trump revealed classified info. And uh, we also have a number of you weighing in in real time on Facebook. If you ever want to do this, just go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We posted the story there. And uh, you have um, people writing, what a joke. They're desperate for a Watergate story. Sorry, losers. Russian nonsense. Fake news. Another person writes, fake news. Another person writes, WAPO is not a credible news source. Not anymore. And then you got another one, fake news. And then um, you've got, uh, I should have I said first names with all those. Sorry. Next time I will. This story is false. Uh, anyway, people are, people are not buying it. Uh, they're not buying the story. So it looks like... Um, it looks like I may, in fact, be uh, on CNN tomorrow morning around 9 Eastern talking about this. That's the that's the word on the street right now. Um, but let's move for a second to uh, Spicer and the nonsense about a special. Bro, well, first of all, a Spicer press conference today. Let's talk about it a bit. Um, there's all this reporting on the possible shakeup in the White House they're going to get rid of. Uh, you know, they're going to move out Spicer and Bannon and Priebus. I don't know. I, I don't have the kind of access in this White House. I don't know if anybody has the access into this White House to know if that will happen or not, because you're talking about so such a small circle and the power center in that Trump and maybe I don't know, Ivanka and Jared, um, they may change their minds on any given issue at any given time. So who knows if your information will be correct or not by the time you print it but on the notion well two things addressed today that were important in the press conference just want to hit on um first you had spicer saying that fbi former fbi director james comey was not up to the job i think that there was clearly bipartisan support uh that jim comey wasn't up to the job the president has every right uh, to fire a person because he believed Director Comey lacked the judgment and the decision-making skills and wasn't up to the job. Yeah. I wish they had just said that initially. Look, I'm not going to play around here. The way they did it, not the choice to do it or even the timing of it, 
But the explanations around the firing, it was just a self-inflicted wound. They didn't, they didn't have to do, do it that way. They, they could have been savvier about it. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's that. Uh, the White House communications shop could use some fine-tuning. That's at a minimum. Okay. Um, but the Comey thing, I, I, I haven't talked to you about it today, really, because I think it's it is time to move on. The, those who are obsessed with the Trump Russia investigation aren't going to stop. And Comey being fired doesn't stop that investigation. So what's what's really the point? Uh, the uh, hopeful the uh, possible replacements for FBI director that I've seen so far are uh, good choices. Um, Ray Kelly whom I worked for at one point at the NYPD Intelligence Division. Um, I think he'd be a, a strong choice. Merrick Garland as a an olive branch to the Democrats. I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I don't really think that the problem with with extending yourself to the Democrats is that you never get anything for it. Right. Unless it's in their interest to go along with you. If you're just looking for fair play or. Or considerate behavior to be rewarded, you're going to be waiting a long time. So, yeah, there's that. Um, it's we'll have to see who the uh, there. I know there's a lot of different people that are up for the possible FBI director role. Um, so we'll see. The uh, I'm trying to see who else is on this list. You've got a bunch of judges. Uh, Francis Townsend, top national security advisor to Mr. Bush, who held senior Justice Department uh, positions. Oh, Fran Townsend? Okay. Interesting. Some interesting choices on here. They're going to get a new FBI director, bottom line. It's not it, – it, the Comey thing is going to go, and, you know, Comey will get a, a very big book advance, and, you know, who cares? Um, let's get to uh, the need for a special prosecutor, though. Spicer addressed that. A- I think this is a process that's running um, completely as it should, as being headed by the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General. Uh, as you, we've noted in the past, the FBI Director reports to the Deputy Attorney General. Uh, they continue to move through a series of highly qualified candidates, uh, and it's, you know, obviously this is a huge priority for the President to make sure that we have someone that has uh, the ability to administer the proper leadership uh, to the FBI. And that I'm the special prosecutor? I think that's there. There's frankly no need for a special prosecutor. We've discussed this before. You have two Senate committees uh, that are looking into this. The FBI is conducting uh, their own review, and it's been made very clear that there's been, uh, with respect to the president himself, both Senator Schumer, Senator Feinstein, Senator Manchin, and everyone else who have been briefed on this have been very clear that there was no collusion with the, with respect to the president himself, and no investigation there. No special prosecutor. Don't do it, Republicans. Doesn't matter what the Democrats cry about on this one. Do not do it. Uh, this is the this is the dream come true for Democrats because special prosecutors want to justify what they're doing. They're going to go after someone. They did this to the Bush administration. They will ruin the lives of innocent people who just get caught up in the machinery of the investigation. Do not do it. No special prosecutor. Hour three coming up. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. 
Welcome back, team. There is something I want to talk to you about a little bit. Um, I am a fan of old school books. Uh, I'm somebody who uh, thinks that while e-readers are fantastic for the sake of convenience and it's great to be able to highlight and uh, bookmark your page and do all the fun things you can do uh, without marring the pages of an actual book, I went from being an e-reader guy to going back and becoming more of a traditional book guy. I mean, I have both. I have an e-reader by my bedside table, but I have hard copy books in uh, in abundance. Well, at least for a, a small, very cozy, tiny Manhattan apartment, which is where I, I live. Uh, I have books strewn about the floor. I've got a bookshelf that takes up much more of my apartment than it should. And I've had people ask me that have come to visit uh, including family members, even like, well, you got a lot of books. Why not just go the e-reader route? And I say, I, I think that there's something special about an actual physical book. I'm, I haven't yet given up on the idea uh, that we should be buying these bound pages with cardboard and designs on them. And I've seen a few stories in uh, recent, well, a story from yesterday that I want to talk to you about, and then also just a, a one that I've I've seen in the past. The first is uh, in the Guardian. The title is "How Real Books Have Trumped Ebooks," and how the digital revolution was expected to kill traditional publishing, but print books are ever more beautifully designed and lovingly cherished. So there's been a shift now, and in order to, it's very interesting. In order to compete with what was expected to be the ebook revolution. Uh, there was a period of time some years ago when ebooks first came out that they started making these really cheap copies of books and, and uh, book printing. Uh, they're trying to cut back on the cost because it actually does cost uh, some, some real money when you do a large printing of a, of a hardcover book. And the, the design and also the, the page texture and quality, actual physical pages. So they started making all these cheap uh, reprints where they would just do – it's like a glorified bound copy, Xerox copies, right? And the idea was, well, paper super cheap. We'll give you super cheap paper versions, and that'll be the way we compete with uh, the e-reader. Um, but it hasn't worked out that way because people like to hold – and feel and have and, and be in the presence of a physical book. And I, I think especially as we begin to look more uh, critically at how social media and devices, really devices, but also social media is how most of us waste time on those devices, are taking over every minute of our lives. There's such a, a focus on, you know, you have to have either a laptop or a computer in front of you, a some kind of a smartphone on your person at all times and maybe a tablet just in case you need something that's midway between the two. And now there are smartphones that are the size of tablets and there are tablets that can double the smartphones and, you know, they're just devices all over. And look, I know that devices are incredibly, uh, I, I'm on mine all the time, although I do make a point now. Uh, and when I'm with uh, Molly, my girlfriend, I, I make a point to put the device away. And be present. I've told that uh, told that to you before for the purposes of dinner and when I've seen young couples that should be having fun out on a date or, you know, much older couples. I, it's, it's all ages. Put the device away. But with devices everywhere, I think the assumption has been that everyone will start reading off of a screen. But there's 
I don't know what it is. There's a maybe it's a romantic view I have of this, but there's something about reading an actual physical book and having it in your hands and also the sense of keeping it with you. You know, whether you put it on your coffee table, up on a a bookshelf or you do what I do and you just stack them around your desk, uh, the physical presence of books is something that I I think is um, making it is making a comeback in, in the minds of people as something that they should have. Uh, in this Guardian piece, it says that after reaching a peak in 2014, sales of e-readers and e-books have slowed and hardback sales have surged. The latest figures from the Publishing Association show e-book sales falling 17% in 2016 with an 8% rise in their physical counterparts. People are going back to old school books. Um, and this is another part of this that I think is essential. Um, I remember the Jesuits. I went to a Jesuit high school and the, the uh, headmaster of the school, which uh, I don't know if if um, this is something that we were, they probably have changed it now. It's probably the president or the principal. But we used to call it the headmaster. And uh, the headmaster of the school said that one thing that was very important was to, uh, that everyone should be reading all the time. The students should always be reading and that they should know that 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 should just be a part of their daily routine in their lives, whether for work, whether for schoolwork or otherwise, but also that having dinner together as a family, he found was a very important, uh, a, a, I don't know, it's a, a very important part of a successful high school career, that eating together when possible as a family um, and not having not having TV on or having the tablets out and everything else, that that was something everybody should at least aspire for. Now people travel for work and they've got responsibilities, but when you have the chance, eat together as a family with no distractions. One one other thing I would add on to that is the presence of physical books in a home, the social science on this, the studies that have been done are fascinating. Just having books in a home, when you account for other factors, socioeconomic factors as well, uh, just having books around in the home seems to have benefits. It seems to encourage uh, a certain approach. I mean, you've got, for example, even uh, there's a there's a thread here on Reddit, but also on Salon.com, which is a left-wing site. Book owners have smarter kids, which is a pretty gruff way to say it. Um, but uh, what is this? There's also a magazine here about... Um, Oh, the Pacific Standard Magazine. Books in the home are strongly linked to academic achievement. And test scores from 42 nations provide evidence of the benefits of having a home library. Having books in the home. Actual physical books, right? Not, oh, I've got them all downloaded on my computer. Nobody can see them. But being in the presence of uh, physical books is linked to higher academic achievement. It is linked uh, to better test scores. It has all of these uh, benefits and people struggle to come up with a direct explanation for why this is because it, it shouldn't be just you, you don't learn through osmosis right it's not like the book is near you and the knowledge just seeps through and enters your brain but I think that if you're in a home and there are books around you um, you get into more of a habit of books in your life and if you have read one, you're more likely to pick it up again if you see it, but you're also reminded of it, right? So once you've completed a book and you put it up on your shelf or you put it on your 
uh, you put it on your bedside table or even if you just use it to, to prop up your dining room table, whatever it may be, and you see it, I think it triggers parts of the brain that, and this is just my own theory, so this is not based in any hashtag science, but it triggers parts of the brain that would remind you of what you learned in it, what you thought about with it. I think that they, that the physical presence of the Max as a, um, a, a constant uh, short form uh, quiz of, you know, oh yeah, I remember I read that book. And whether you think about it consciously or subconsciously, uh, I just I just believe that it, it it gets your mind going again the way that it did when you're reading it. So interesting that now people are returning to hardcover books and moving away from uh, from the e-readers a little bit. Uh, e-readers are great too. Uh, they both have a place, but a a series of pages bound together with a fancy designed cover meant to convey something about the book. By the way, you shouldn't judge books by its cover, but you should pay attention to the cover because. Um, that also has all kind. It sends all kinds of signals uh, to the reader about what to expect, and I think also for our discussion here about just having the physical presence of books around you, it uh, the cover triggers some of those uh, memories and the knowledge and the um, processes going on inside your brain as you're reading it. So that's um, anyway, and they're kind of like intellectual trophies. You know, you have them around the house, and you oh, I remember I read that and. You know, there's a little pride you can take too, especially when you tackle a big one. If you read the, uh, you know, if you read uh, War and Peace, or if you or if you take on the Power Broker by Caro, that's a big one. That's a bear of a book. That's a big one. Um, anyway, I mean, they're just trotting out the whole cast of national security experts over at CNN right now. Uh, some of them I, I know pretty well. Uh, they're just they're just ro- rolling everybody out right now to just 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 let's. I got an idea, everybody. Let's wildly speculate on how much terrible national security damage Donald Trump did, based on a report that uh, is completely contested, contested not just by the administration in general, but by National Security Advisor McMaster specifically. And uh, let let's just extrapolate. And come out with all kinds of wild theories about how Trump is uh, endangering uh, our relationships with allied intelligence services. Trump is endangering platforms. I mean, I- I'm not e- I'm not kidding, guys. I was in the break just now looking at it. And and a, a standard question right now on CNN goes something along the lines of, I mean, how destructive, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, how, how destructive could Trump's theoretical disclosure of classified information be? Well, I, you know, th- theoretically, Trump could have given away the, the nuclear codes while he was eating his Cheerios, right? But one, it didn't happen. And, and two, what is what is this theoretically nonsense? We're, we're just going to make it up as we go along. We're just going to say, well, I mean, how, how, how damaging could it really have been? How, how terrifying could this really be for us? Um, well... We don't know because it might not be damaging at all because nothing uh, may have happened. Let's not forget, there are a couple of ways you can analyze this. First of all, I'm going on imperfect information. I wasn't in the room. I haven't spoken to anybody in the room, and neither have any of these other clowns that I'm seeing on TV. But the the point here being, so we have imperfect information. If we're going to be real analysts of imperfect information, as I said before, motivation is very important. Why would Trump tell the Russians something? That would be damaging to U.S. national security in a setting where there were others around him. So 
It's not like this was, he thought he was doing this in secret and got caught. Why would the president of the United States do that? Doesn't have a good reason. Okay, so so the only motivation would be recklessness or carelessness. And we're going to have to take the word of anonymous sources reporting to the Washington Post to believe that that is, in fact, what happened. But here's another layer of analysis that I would apply to this whole story right now, which you can already see, by the way, on social media has just erupted into accusations of fake news and 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 calls for impe- calls for impeachment on one side, accusations of fake news on the other. This is what our discourse is devolving into. Uh, unfortunately, um, just the impeachment cries, uh, you know, that's, it's never going to get old, I guess, for some, uh, but here's another level that I think we should keep in mind. So last week, Trump was destroying democracy and undermine. Um, so this is the narrative, right? I'm, this is not me speaking. I'm, I'm identifying what is being said by the media, by the Democrats. Last week, he's firing Comey. He's undermining democracy. He's destroying the country. He's doing terrible things by firing Comey. Now we have this story that Trump is uh, releasing or, or is giving all this deeply damaging information to the Russians in this meeting. Um, what is the information? Of course, we don't know. Uh, and we're going to now. Now it comes down to: Do you believe? I know that McMaster works for Trump, right? That's Okay, fine, but the guy's uh, has a long-standing career in, in public service, and and in the military. And you're going to tell me that he's just going to go out there? He's going to be the guy, the fall guy for this one? I don't think Trump has that kind of sway. Breaking news: They're saying on CNN, a Washington Post shared highly classified info uh, with the Russians. Um, okay, did he? Did he not? I just think, though, it's this is the layer of analysis I wanted to add on. to this. So motivation we've already dealt with. There's no reason for Trump to do this. They'll say that he was being careless or, or really, I think what they'll claim is that Trump is too stupid to know uh, what classified in is and is not, which I should note is the defense they actually did employ successfully for Hillary Clinton to avoid prosecution, not knowing that over 100 instances of classified email were transversing her um private server, an unsecured private server in, in gross violation of any number of federal statutes and, and State Department protocols. OK, um, so the, Hillary was was too dumb to know what was classified. They used that defense before, but they're going to say to Trump to condemn him that he's too dumb to know that what he was saying was um, was classified. That's that's going to be part of it. OK, so they're going to go with a, a reckless, a recklessness. I mean, wow, CNN, a cast of. I've never even seen this. There's like just more and more people popping up on the screen from all over the place. They're all going to weigh in on a meeting they didn't attend that is has contested reports about it. And yeah, that's where we are. Contest reports, meeting they didn't attend. And they're going to extrapolate the most damaging possible conclusions from this. Now my layer of analysis that you won't get from the media. It seems pretty convenient, doesn't it? Last week there was Comey. You know, this week there's the disclosure to the Russians. Um, right, right when they want a story that's going to define the news cycle for the week, that's very that's damaging. 
to the administration and to people's perceptions of the administration. It just it just appears like clockwork, like magic, almost like the sort of thing that would be manufactured for effect. Uh, here we have Trump once again under siege in the news cycle, and I am. Uh, amazed to see the ease with which people will go on TV and just uh, say all these things without there and they're theorizing, right? Like I said, they're extrapolating, they're they're drawing uh, conclusions, several orders of evidence uh, away from what the evidence actually says, right? Or, or sev- several steps away from what the evidence actually says so far, or what the reporting indicates so far. So the the question is not did Trump you'll notice it it's not did Trump share information or not the media doesn't want to handle that cuz they can't get an answer to that they're just going to go with the Washington Post report but now you are uh given a steady stream of worst case scenario analysis of how terrible Trump is you will notice that if tomorrow the story this is a perfect this is a classic example of why people don't trust the media I actually saw a poll before that 11% of respondents to a, a national poll trust the national news media to be unbiased in their reporting. Um, tomorrow, if the story is that, okay, maybe we got ahead of ourselves here, it wasn't really that classified, there were other people in the room, and it's clearly not illegal because the president can declassify whatever he wants. So you can just say that this is, uh, you know, th- th- I said what I said and that's what I wanted to say. Okay. So it's clearly not illegal. Um, But if the story tomorrow is a walk back of all of this today, it won't matter because across on screens, well, at least if you're watching CNN or MSNBC, right now, Fox, I think I saw Tucker's show in the break, has on like some leftist or something and they're arguing over culture war stuff, I think. I I didn't watch the segment, but I just saw the uh, saw the screen with the the banner up. Um, But now. Watching this whole thing play out. Um, okay. So everyone gets to just take their worst case scenario analysis and, th- and put it out there on TV to terrify everybody about how bad Trump is and he's done this awful, terrible thing. And yet maybe he's done nothing. But that won't matter tomorrow because the damage will have been done, right? The reputational damage to the administration will have been done. People don't care about the correction, they just care about the initial damning accusation. And that's uh, on screens across the country all night now. You will see just Trump is reckless, gave the Russians class, of course, gave the Russians classified. I mean, this is this is hitting on all the all the uh, the special buttons of the of the deranged left here. And they're loving it. Um, Anyway, I'm going to move on to some other topics here because there's nothing else. This might be a complete nothing burger of a story. This really could just be entirely fake news. If it's not fake news, I'm pretty sure it's very exaggerated news. But they see an opening. They see an opportunity to harm this White House. And they are going all in just like they always do. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back.
All right, everybody, welcome back. We are joined by our friend Matt Welch. He is editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. You can check out his latest online at Reason.com. He's co-author of the book, The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. Great to have you, Mr. Welch. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. So uh, tell me a bit, if you would please, sir, um, about this government is not the or government is the cause of not the solution to the latest hacking outbreak. You wrote this on Reason.com. This hacking is all over the world. People are freaking out. What did government do here? Uh, well, that wasn't my uh, piece. That was a, a piece by my colleague uh, Scott Shackford. But as far as we can tell, this originated with us. <laughs> Whoops! Uh, this uh, this huge uh, 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 malware uh, ransomware that uh, uh, spilled out everywhere was uh, originated in the U.S. government here, and it spilled out of our our uh, our laboratories and into the uh, the world writ large. And it was only fixed by some 22 year old kid living in his mom's basement who bought a software program for $10.69. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, it's a sign that we have a difficult time. We're, you know, you know better than most people do that uh, it is a art, not a science, to be involved with counterintelligence and technology and all these types of things. Um, but occasionally some things get out of our own grasp, and we are able to uh, wreak a little bit of havoc on the world, and that's what happened in this ransomware case uh, here. And what do you think should be done to try and help handle this situation? Well, I mean, I'm a kind of a radical uh, person uh, in uh, by nature. Um, I, I tend to believe that uh, resilience and openness is a better solution than kind of giving uh, the federal government monopoly on on anything necessarily or most things. Um, for instance, you know, since 1993, since the first Clinton administration, the first, the only, thank God, Clinton administration, uh, we've had the federal government has been interested in, like, having some kind of golden key to go into all technology, all computers, all everything, um, without the, uh, I mean, it's taken them a long time to slowly learn that if any institution, let alone a pristinely run institution like the U.S. federal government, um, it has the one key that goes into one door, then, you know, the red Chinese are going to get a copy of that key. You know, people are going to find it. That becomes a vulnerability. So what you want to do is we have a, a very robust uh, private sector uh, that's producing all kinds of things out there. Have some trust in that. You want, you want to have people to have access to be able to crack open their own phones, protect their own selves, and not just have a single point either of creation of uh, good things or bad things, or to have any kind of choke points on the development of technologies in this country. And it's not satisfying because it's not sexy. It isn't, I press this button and solve this problem. But, in fact, that's kind of how markets and technology work. There's a reason why we develop the best technology in the world and North Korea doesn't, or you know, uh, the, the East Germany didn't back in the day. They can focus on a few things, maybe get those few things not completely terrible, but generally speaking, open systems are far more resilient and innovative than closed systems, and so that general approach should be taken, I think. We're speaking to Matt Welch. He's editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and his latest can be seen on Reason.com. Uh, Matt, Jeff Sessions, new guidance on 
criminal prosecutions. I said on the show last week, this is I just I just can't roll with the Trump administration on this. I'm just, I'm just not down with this, and I'm figuring because you're a libertarian, uh, it's a safe bet you're not down with this either. This uh, was uh, always the, uh, the strongest reason to oppose Jeff Session as appointment to Attorney General of the United States, uh, in addition to uh, the fact that he was just so close uh, politically uh, to Trump. He's a really key uh, member of, you know, one of the first uh, senators and prominent politicians in Washington to get behind Trump. So there's some loyalty there. And granted, every attorney general is ultimately a lackey of the president. Eric Holder certainly was to a really disgusting uh, degree. Um, and that's, that is a tradition. However, if you have any sense of potential disquiet about Donald Trump, and I probably have a little bit more than maybe the average listener here, but even if you think that he's good and you acknowledge that he's, he's a little bit different, he, he has a different kind of experience, and so you want to have a little bit of kind of prophylactic protection here. But uh, so like having a, a political uh, ally, strong political allies is kind of uh, problematic. However, the biggest thing was this, uh, that Jeff Sessions has an attitude about the drug war and also about law enforcement in general that uh, would fit a lot more into the America of 1982 or 3 than it does in the America now. He's been on the opposite end of all the kind of criminal justice reform that has been done, and I'm not talking here necessarily about Black Lives Matter. I'm talking here about Rand Paul, Mike Lee, uh, Ted Cruz until the later stages of the presidential campaign when he opportunistically flipped on these issues, but going against such provably failed ideas as mandatory minimum sentencing uh, or three strikes types of laws and these types of things. Uh, whenever uh, Congress has been in the Senate, has been going after these things, the biggest opponent on the other side was Jeff Sessions. And I uh, ha- am chagrined uh, genuinely by the fact that every single Republican in particular voted to affirm uh, Jeff Sessions, including many Republicans who have been bitterly opposed to him on these fights, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, um, among them, <coughs> Jeff Flake. And they did it out of a sense of collegiality, but also because they're scared to cross Donald Trump. I mean, Rand Paul opposed Loretta Lynch, and rightly so, on civil asset forfeiture uh, grounds. Jeff Sessions has the same beliefs. He thinks that if the government decides to seize your property, even if you did not commit a crime, they're not even charging you with a crime, they just think you're a drug dealer, he has said, and I'm not even making this up, that, well, 95% of those people are guilty anyways even though none of them are being hauled into court. So he has these really atavistic ideas about it, and his move on Friday to, I mean, he rolled back the clock to 2013. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves here. The Obama administration only then um, got anywhere near a point you know, of sanity when it came to uh, uh, guidance, discretionary guidance on uh, sentencing reform. Um, and before that, uh, Obama had been much worse than George W. Bush on doing things like raiding medical marijuana dispensaries in California. He, he raided way more than Bush ever did in, in his first uh, term. However, Sessions is awful on this. Republicans should have, uh, at least some of them, should have opposed him. They didn't. Uh, and now, you know, there's a lot of crocodile tears from the likes of Rand Paul saying this is terrible. And he's right that it is terrible, but he didn't do his job back then. And I've told him that in person, and I'll tell him that again. Yeah, but was it, was it so clear that Sessions was going to take this approach based on how he had been in the past? I mean, maybe that's, maybe I'm asking an obvious question, but my, my sense of... Absolutely clear. There was no question about this. This is a very, just like his positions on immigration um, uh, are crystal clear. They are they are a fundamental part of how he has uh, comported himself and governed himself. He's, he's a guy who, during last fall, 
I mean, as recently as last fall, praised Donald Trump. He said to his own uh, uh, people or constituents, hey, look, Donald, we know Donald Trump is going to be tough on crime because of this letter that he sent. And he pointed to a letter that Donald Trump sent in 1989, I believe, like to the New York Daily News or the Post, uh, advocating the death penalty for the Central Park Five. Now, what we know about the Central Park Five is that they were wrongly convicted. <laughs> we know that now. Even if they were scumbags, and I don't know if they are, but it's possible, uh, but on the crime that... Jeff Sessions was happy that uh, Donald Trump was advocating the death penalty for. They were innocent of that crime. Um, and so these are the types of attitudes that an attorney general... Well, they were guilty of assault, but not guilty of a rape. But anyway, that's a whole other... They all admitted right. to be. They all admitted being present for the assault. And actually, if they're holding somebody down while she's being raped, they're also guilty for the rape. But we don't have time to get too deep into the Central Park Five right now. That said, the death penalty for them seems to be a strong position from the criminal justice perspective. Uh, and and so this this is fundamental to where, who Jeff Sessions always was. It was brought up not nearly enough in the confirmation hearings by Democrats. I mean, the Democrats, Diane Feinstein, her first question to Jeff Sessions at this thing was not uh, about the, the drug war, was not about civil asset forfeiture, not about these big, important things that are in play right now. Nope. It was about a bunch of nonsense that she was making up about uh, sex trafficking. She's like, do you know this is the second largest you know, illegal activity in the entire country, which is absolute garbage nonsense um, uh, in hysteria. This is, the Democrats decided to prioritize against Betsy DeVos, who doesn't matter. And I, I say that as someone who's, who's I'm, you know, I'm perfectly fond of Betsy DeVos. I'm glad that she's the education secretary. But if I am like uh, you know, being oppositional to Donald Trump, who is the person who has a whip hand, whose position matters, and who has the ability, uh, based on his own discretion about how to, to deploy resources, he has the ability to really tangibly affect people's lives. It ain't Betsy DeVos, it's Jeff Sessions. And all they brought with him is like, oh, we think that he might have been a racist in 1976. Or, you know, this, this thing that he said at a hearing in 1982 could be misconstrued in a way that we can play it up to our base. I'm sorry, no. They did a terrible job of giving the Rand Pauls of the world any cover at all, any kind of olive branch at all to go and oppose the guy. And then Rand Paul didn't step up either. So, uh, no, he's, this is not surprising at all uh, what he has done. And this is who we're, we are going to have uh, as the uh, attorney general for the next four to eight years. Matt Welch, everybody, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine and also author of The Declaration of Independence. Check out his latest at Reason.com. Matt, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. We had a great Mother's Day yesterday, my friends. Really enjoyed ourselves in the uh, Sexton family. We all uh, went and, and paid mom a visit uh, and brought her flowers, of course, because you know, we all... No, we think we have the best mom in the world, So, as I'm sure you do as well. But my mom really is phenomenal and uh, and is just fantastic and is the, the rock upon which my entire family uh, is has been built. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not yet uh, married, so there was no—I didn't have, like, my own kids that were celebrating their mom, my wife. I'm, I'm working on a team. Give me some time. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, I was able to spend time with my mom, and I have three siblings, so we all went up and we had dinner. And, uh, you know, I'm not one usually for the the holidays that kind of just people, ex- you know, that, that seem a little commercialized or whatever, you know. It's, you know, va- Valentine's Day, for example. Oh, yeah, let's just force everybody to try to make reservations at the same few restaurants and 
worry that we're going to disappoint our significant other or spouse, maybe. Although I think I think spouses know like Valentine's Day. Who cares? Right. But, you know, when you're dating somebody. You don't know, especially in the early days, that there's going to be some judgment made. If there's if there's real pressure on you to, to make something happen, that's fun and spontaneous and romantic on, on Valentine's Day. You can go, of course, with some nice chocolates. I mean, chocolate, I think, is always the answer. I don't know. Uh, chocolate is always the answer for me. Whatever the the problem is, I feel like chocolate at least has a has a role in the solution if it's not entirely the solution. And, and on Valentine's Day, there's certainly a case to be made for that. Um, but Mother's Day, Father's Day, it's nice. It's nice to take some time and uh, and show respect and, and love to um, the very important people in our lives that are uh, our parents. Um, or if, of course, in the case of uh, a spouse and you have kids, you know, you want to help them celebrate Mother's Day or Father's Day. But hey, so everything with us was was great and it was so nice. And I'm, I'm very blessed to have the family that I do. And I also always think that when we talk about uh, privilege and uh, advantage in society, uh, I think the one nice thing that everybody, uh, everyone listening should should always remember is that there is there is no bigger advantage in life that I know of than having uh, caring parents and and a supportive family. Uh, that that's you know, if you have that, you've got a lot, uh, and and you're very lucky. And it doesn't matter how much money they have in the bank. It doesn't matter uh, you know where you live. If you have parents who are there for you and really care, you've got a big uh, leg up on on life. Um, so that's on the happy side of things. But now I got to transition for a second because I thought Mother's Day was was safe from the SJWs, from the social justice warriors. I thought that there was, uh, I, I didn't see at least the way that they would come up with uh, some kind of anti-Mother's Day uh, movement, right? Or, or or to criticize it. Heat Street, though, provided me with evidence that, yes, in fact, Mother's Day itself is... Uh, Something that we now have to sit around and the social justice warriors want to uh, litigate it and they, they won't just let it go. Here's what here's the piece on on Heat Street by Jillian K. Uh, Melchior. Uh, critics attack Mother's Day as, quote, offensive because it's a gendered holiday. That's right. Mother's Day is now a problem because of mothers as being female. Um, let me read you what this says. This was inevitable. This is a quote from the piece. This was inevitable. Social justice warriors are now saying that Mother's Day is gender exclusionary. Writing in the Toronto Star, columnist Emma Titel says that such gendered holidays are generally a drag for non-binary parents who don't identify with a single gender. Uh, there's even a proposed non-binary parents' day. Uh, Tidehill notes, July 17th, but she has a different idea. Getting rid of both Mother's and Father's Day and in the spirit of both inclusivity and selfishness, opting for a gender-neutral Guardian's Day. A guardian can be a mom, a dad, a non-binary parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a pet owner, or why the heck not, somebody who takes really good care of his houseplants, she writes. Oh, here we are. Here we are. Um, this Mother's Day, several transgender people have written or posted videos describing how the holiday can trigger fe- feelings of guilt and 
confusion. You see, this is one of the outgrowths of a culture that is obsessed with victimology. And we should always know that victimology is a very particular kind of uh, uh, kind of offense, meaning that y- you claim victim status, but you do it so that there can be a transfer of power to the victim class. It's not just we're victims, be nice to us. It's we're victims. So we're going to make demands now through the state to force you to act a certain way that we want you to. So claiming victim status is not a, is not a cry for help. It's it's not a plea for kinder, gentler treatment, although it may start, it may sound that way in the very beginning, but in, in our society now, claiming official victimhood, uh, claiming victim status as a protected group, whether uh, ethnic group, gender identity group, any of the above, is always a precursor to demanding government action to shift power, to create a power imbalance in favor of the uh, supposedly afflicted group. And and that's and that's why you, you see this now uh, popping up in all kinds of places. And with Mother's Day, I know this isn't going it's not yet at a place where it will gain traction, but it just goes to show you that uh, these people, first of all, these people being social justice warriors are completely humorless and they can't even allow people to celebrate moms. It's not enough. It should be noted. Uh, they don't have a live and let live philosophy, a transgender parent day is not what they want. Just like in the school uh, bathroom debate, it's not that they want a separate facility that's perfectly usable and fine that is gender neutral. No, they want to force the other side to comply. That's where the power balancing comes in or imbalancing, depending on how you look at it. And so in this case, it's not that Mother's Day can exist and Father's Day and Cousin's Day and people can create whatever days they want. No, to enforce their ideology, their orthodoxy, their progressive orthodoxy on the rest of us, the plan will, if it's not yet there, it will be uh, to include Transgender Parents Day or Transgender Parent Day or whatever, non-binary, non-cisgender parent day. I mean, the, the language here is is fascinating. And by the way, the, the social justice warriors, I would like to spend more time on this. This is kind of an aside to me. There are so many similarities they have to the uh, communists and their ideology. But anyway, I digress, team.